Welcome to the U.S.-China Salon. Today, we are joined by Stuart Gottlieb, Professor of Foreign Policy at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. We appreciate your presence here today as we dive into global issues that affect us all. Our focus today lies on the Ukrainian conflict and its impact on the world order, particularly its correlation to China-U.S. relations. Now, Professor Stewart, your recent article, Ukraine and the End of the New World Order, has caught our attention, and we look forward to your insights. But before we dive into the topic, are there any preliminary points you wish to address? Um, yeah, I can bring up a few points. It's I'm really happy to be here. You know, we can talk a little bit about the Ukraine war, but as you know, it's in the bigger context of some shifts going on in world politics these mm -hmm. days. Um, and the big uh, relationship that everyone's concerned with these days is U.S.-China. Mm -hmm. That's been true since the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. It's been true since China entered the World Trade Organization. Um, it's more true today than ever, and it's going to be equally true in 20 years. Mm -hmm. So in terms of big world history, it's U.S.-China uh, is the big relationship, as, <clears throat> as you and your organization knows. Um, I just, I was sort of um, thinking about the topic a little bit before I came in, and I, I was thinking there's been sort of three big telling recent events um, over the last couple of days, the last week, maybe the last month or two. Um, and uh, this week, uh, China announced restrictions on two minerals um, used in semiconductors, solar panels, uh, missile systems, um, very, very uh, strategic minerals, uh, gallium and germanium, which China essentially has strategic monopoly over. Um, that's in response to the United States putting some export controls on certain types of chips and semiconductor technologies. So there's a lot of tit-for-tat going back and forth between these two countries. But in terms of their economic capacity, um, China is not at the level of the United States yet. Mm -hmm. And I think if China decides it wants to go one-on-one one -on -one against the United States and starts restricting important supplies of minerals that are mm -hmm. vital to American national security and the national security of the West, um, that's going to be a big mistake on, on uh, China's part because mm -hmm. the United States will start pushing back pretty aggressively mm -hmm. on stuff like that. Um, so I thought that was that's pretty telling, though, that China was willing to start restricting important assets. Mm -hmm. um, the concern is that the West will start viewing China as a, an unfriendly uh, partner mm -hmm. in the global economy, much like the way people now view Russia uh, as an unfriendly partner in what was once a very um, uh, mutually beneficial uh, uh, gas and oil uh, relationship with the Western Europeans. But then they realized when security issues became prominent, those relationships and those dependencies on economic um, goods and services were no longer reliable. Mm -hmm. And if the United States and China are going to have a, a, a good working relationship moving forward, uh, we can't be threatening each other's uh, mm -hmm. critical foundations of, of economic you know, uh, materials and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's a big issue for China. China is in control of a lot of really important strategic uh, minerals and so-called rare earths, uh, things like that, aluminum. Um, uh, for example, lithium, obviously cobalt. Russia controls about two-thirds of the global either supply or, or uh, uh, processing of these materials. They're extend, extending themselves out beyond just uh, uh, Asia and into Africa and, other, and Latin America, other parts of the world, where they're now engaging in global production of these very important uh, minerals uh, and other uh, uh, metals. Um, so that was just uh, this week. Uh, last week, there was an important meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, um, which is a relatively new organization mm -hmm. that really is about these, uh, you know, the emergence of Asia as, as a, a center of global 
uh, power as it's increasing, you know, the Asian countries, uh, including China, uh, including uh, India, uh, increasing in global power. I thought it was an interesting meeting last, last week. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin, and, and Modi uh, all had a tripartite meeting, and, I, and they, you know, their rhetoric is not, is not A, surprising, and B, a secret. Um, they want to challenge the Western rules-based world order, uh, not go to war against it. This is not the rising axis of powers. Mm -hmm. But um, this is not unusual in world politics where countries that are getting bigger and stronger, more powerful economically, more important economically, building up more military capacity as countries tend to do. Um, and, you know, it's an important new organization. Um, the question is, can they stay together? We can get more into it, you know, during, during our discussion, but India is a key pivotal player. Uh, on the one hand, they're all on one side of sort of pushing back against what they call American hegemony. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, there are three countries that have had their own, you know, mm -hmm. disputes and conflicts in the past, particularly China and India. Mm -hmm. um, right. But I think that's an important uh, new organization uh, to keep an eye on, and it's not... Um, uh, a surprise that China basically invented that organization as something to sort to counter things like the Atlantic Council and other kind of Western organizations, even what they would consider to be like the United Nations as so pro-Western. Um, they want to create these sort of separate themselves out from the global institutions and create other institutions that are much more China-led, um, whether it's Belt and Road, Shanghai, um, you know, three or four other, uh, their, their new um, infrastructure bank, um, their development bank. Um, they really want to challenge the IMF. They want to challenge the World Bank. And, uh, and it's interesting that Russia and India are sort of going along with some of these mm -hmm. um, non-Western, if you will, mm -hmm. um, global institutions, which they see as necessary to challenge Western hegemony or American primacy, as they would uh, critique it. Then the third one, real briefly, um, just a few, uh, about a month and a half ago, the United States intelligence community, um, Avril Haines is the uh, director of national intelligence, gave classified briefings uh, to Congress and um, made it clear, and there's a declassified version of this stuff, that the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping represent the gravest threat to U.S. national security. Mm. And it's like a 45-page briefing book of all the ways that China is sort of taking a turn mm. into a much more antagonistic, confrontational, much more closed, militaristic, authoritarian um, type system. Now, China would say the same thing about the United States, and they do. You know, so I'm not saying that that's the gospel of truth in the world. That's the American perspective. But it is interesting. It has bled into the, in, the intelligence community. It's not just politicians going to Taiwan like Nancy Pelosi and, you know, causing trouble. Um, you know, this is, this is the deep analysis of 16 U.S. intelligence agencies that are no longer looking at al-Qaeda, no longer looking at even, you know, I know they're the Democrats at least get fixated on things like climate change as the great existential threat. But here, this is pretty clear. The number one threat is a, a growing China, mm -hmm. um, and not just growing, but turning politically mm -hmm. uh, in a direction. It's not the power, it's the attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, America and the West kind of welcomed China into a much more powerful position in the World Trade Organization, in the Western liberal institutions, and China has benefited greatly from that. So it's not the power which everybody expected China to get to. It was guaranteed with the with 15, 16, 17 percent GDP growth mm -hmm. every year since you know uh, the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, it's the change in attitude politically that is really the big shift in the way the U.S. Uh, is looking at them more suspiciously. So that those kind of three events recently, I think, set the stage for these big changes I think we've been seeing in the world over U.S.-China relations, over the role of China in the world order, of how the United States and the West are reacting to it. In the mix is the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. which is kind of like this... Um, you know, the West likes to think of it as a world war of democracy against tyranny, but uh, that's not how m most of the rest of the world views it. Mm -hmm. They view it as a, a war in Europe, you know, from, from the West mm -hmm. against Russia. Um, and uh, um, I think the bigger issues are these changes taking place on minerals, you know, on, on organizations like Shanghai being created and, and sort of coming of age, and the U.S. getting more suspicious about China in general mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a threat in mm -hmm. the world. Building on our previous discussion, let's consider the recent diplomatic dynamics between China and the U.S. Last week, new restrictions were enforced on germanium and gallium, even after recent high-profile visits to China by Blinken and Yellen. Now, while some believe these trips signaled a thaw in relations, the imposition of these restrictions seemed to tell a different story. How should we interpret the situation? Are these visits successful in their intention, or have they missed their mark? And what are the implications of these restrictions on the broader discourse between these two nations? Talks are always important. Mm -hmm. And I would say they're successful just by having taken place. Mm -hmm. You know, the United States during the dark days of the Cold War would have conferences and dialogues with the Soviets. Mm -hmm. um, not that we're at that stage, U.S. and China mm -hmm. at this point. Um, so anytime you have diplomacy and, and, and engagement, it's always a net positive. You know, mm -hmm. the worst thing you can do, especially from 7,000 miles away, very different histories, very different mm -hmm. cultures. The worst thing you can do is create walls, literally and figuratively, mm -hmm. um, and both physical and digital nowadays. Mm -hmm. You know, create these walls and then just have suspicions and just assume the worst about your enemy. Mm -hmm. And it's very natural. Psychological theories of political science are always, you know, you're going to attribute to your enemies all these ways that they're bad mm -hmm. and attribute to yourself all these ways that you're good. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of that in the different media outlets in the U.S. and China over their descriptions of the other, you mm -hmm. know. So the more we can engage with each other, I know, and one of the great joys of been teaching all of these years is mm -hmm. uh, all the international students I have in my class, all mm -hmm. the Chinese students I have in my class, including members of the Chinese Communist Party and, mm -hmm. and military um, diplomats have been in my class. I got to know them well over the years. Uh, we didn't agree on everything, but you know, engaging and understanding the other mm -hmm. side is critical when you're at these inflection points in history, especially. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to understand the other side so you don't make very dramatic miscalculations, mm -hmm. which could, as we know from prior wars, whether it's World War I or Vietnam, or you could say the Iraq War, um, mm -hmm. and Russia might argue the Ukraine invasion, you know, mm -hmm. you don't make these mistakes based on ignorance. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to have understandings with each other. So that being said, I think Blinken going over there, um, my personal view is uh, Blinken is a pretty good Secretary of State. I think mm -hmm. he is a little too calibrated mm -hmm. on the messaging. It's a little too conciliatory in the sense of, uh, of, you know, we will do really whatever you want as long as you want to remain friends with us. Mm -hmm. I think he comes across a little bit with that attitude. I, I, I don't believe he's like that personally. I think mm -hmm. that's the American diplomatic kind of face right now, and I think it's a, it's a friendly face. Um, there's, there's, there's 
positives to that type of an approach. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a country like China, a country like Russia, a country like Iran, you know, mm -hmm. these countries see kind of overtly friendly faces and, you know, I'm willing to be lectured to and have sort of a bad photo op as mm -hmm. long as everyone sees us having a nice picture at the end. Uh, that's very different than the way a Ronald Reagan you know, would have run diplomacy mm -hmm. uh, or the way, you know, Donald Trump with all of his flaws and faults, you know, mm -hmm. those world leaders did not expect him to come there except for their dictators and mm -hmm. shower them with praise and sort of say, well, do whatever you want mm -hmm. uh, to go along with things. So it's been a big change in diplomacy from, mm -hmm. uh, from Trump to, uh, to Biden and Biden people are doing it on purpose. They want to have a different face to the world. Mm -hmm. um, so Blinken, I think his meeting was, you know, a decent icebreaker, but there were moments where he was lectured by his counterpart mm -hmm. um, and sort of just sat there nodding politely. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how, I understand that plays pretty well in the West, which really wants to think diplomatically. I'm not sure how well that plays in the, you know, the China Times and, and the real state-run media. And mm -hmm. it, it looks like strength from, from Xi and the foreign minister and weakness from, mm -hmm. from the Americans. I did see a lot of that, you know, written up uh, mm -hmm. in the China circles mm -hmm. on uh, the weakness of Blinken. Um, the Yellen meeting, uh, I think China made, I th China did this on purpose. Uh, a couple of weeks before Yellen went to China, uh, mm -hmm. the U.S. did announce our own um, restrictions on sensitive semiconductor materials mm -hmm. and things right. like that. Um, that goes, those arrows go in both directions. That is a dire threat to China mm -hmm. and their military and their growth and their economy, um, as it would be if someone's cutting the United States off from strategic materials mm -hmm. to the U.S. Um, so China took that very hard that the United States keeps increasing these restrictions and the United States keeps trying to get its European partners on board mm -hmm. with a lot more of these restrictions and it's being, U.S. is being pretty successful in that. So I think China, that was not done by mistake. I think when Yellen went there, they wanted the U.S. Treasury Secretary on Chinese soil. That's when they made the announcement, we're cutting off some very strategic minerals. Mm -hmm. We control 75, 80% of the world supply. Now let's talk. Okay. That's its own diplomatic mm -hmm. maneuver. To come know. from a position of strength. Yeah, to come from a, a, a position of what they call in the economic field tit for tat. Mm -hmm. um, we have power over you as well. We control a, a trillion dollars of your debt. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, We control minerals that are acquired for your advances, mm -hmm. whether it's a green energy future or missile technology or a whole bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. You know, Don't forget, we are your partners. Mm -hmm. We're not just a supplier. And that was done on purpose. I think it was very effective on the China part. And I think the U.S. has to figure out a better way to respond. I don't mean respond in a, in a lash out. I mean respond in a, in a way, as the question you just asked kind of framed it, respond in a way where we can figure out how to coexist mm -hmm. moving forward. We don't have to be best friends, mm -hmm. but we do have to be partners in the world together if we are the two largest economies and mm -hmm. we have a lot of interrelationships and interdependencies within mm -hmm. our, our economic necessities. Mm -hmm. um, we're not there yet. I mm -hmm. think the world has to flesh this stuff out. I don't think it's gonna be through Western institutions. I've written about this recently. It's not gonna be through the IMF. It's not gonna be through the World Bank. It's not mm -hmm. gonna be through the UN. I don't think China trusts those institutions. Mm -hmm. um, it's not gonna be through Shanghai. It's not gonna be through uh, the China Development you know, mm -hmm. Initiative. It's not gonna be through some China-centric mm -hmm. uh, institution. Maybe it could be through APEC. Uh, mm -hmm. ASEAN, you know, it might, there might be some other institutions out there that are more neutral, um, mm -hmm. that you could eventually get China and the United States to meet up uh, in those contexts and think of ways for China have a bigger, China's going to ne inevitably have a bigger role in the Asia Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. um, 
And U.S. has a lot of friends and allies in that entire region. China mm -hmm. has to understand that. Um, and a way for these organizations to evolve into what John Kennedy, one of my favorite presidents in history, called, uh, we have to make the, he said, well, Woodrow Wilson said, we have to make the world safe for democracy. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of words threaten China. Those kinds of words threaten Russia. Those kinds of words threaten the Gulf states. Those kinds of words threaten a lot of African states. Mm -hmm. They don't want the West dictating the kinds of political systems anyone else in the world has mm -hmm. to have. John Kennedy, in the early 1960s, wanted to have, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. that'll do it to you. You know, a few <laughs> minutes away from a nuclear holocaust might start making you think about the world a little differently. Mm -hmm. And John Kennedy said, um, we need to make the world safe for diversity. Mm. We have to understand different political systems. We have to live in this diverse world and not lecture everybody on the type of political system you know you need to have. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're going to get there if we're lucky and mm -hmm. uh, we don't make miscalculations and we do have these diplomatic engagements still, mm -hmm. which I think were fruitful mm -hmm. with Blinken and Yellen. <clears throat> um, and it's the world as it's evolving. We don't know what it's going to look like yet, but it, it, mm -hmm. if we're not going to have conflict, um, it's going to have to come through international bodies like that that are mutually. Mm -hmm. um, respectable to both sides. Mm -hmm. no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I definitely want to get back to this topic later and where you see um, and how you see these countries working together more. But you also mentioned that we're at an inflection point, right? Your newest <clears throat> article, Ukraine and the End of the World, talks about that. Could you give us a brief overview of the article and the main points that you make? Yeah, you know, the Ukraine, the Ukraine war <clears throat> is a symptom of the tectonic shifts going on in world politics, not the cause mm -hmm. of it, you know? But I think, like I said before, it's interesting that um, the United States, and particularly the Biden administration, likes to frame the Ukraine war as a final battle between democracy mm -hmm. and tyranny. Mm -hmm. You know, that might have been the 1930s and the 1940s, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that's not Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, we have to do everything we can to prevent Russia from gaining territory and redrawing borders in Europe. That would be a terrible precedent. It would increase their power. <clears throat> they might go after other states like Moldova. They might go after even you know NATO territories mm -hmm. in the Baltic states. So the West is doing the right thing by preventing Russia from you know having too mm -hmm. much of a victory there. Uh, but the rest of the world just sees it as a Western European or an Eastern uh, a European conflict in, in their backyard in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what, what it brought out was not just um, the way major important power players like Russia, like China, are mm -hmm. viewing the world a little bit differently now and they're willing to openly come out and say, mm -hmm. we have to rethink the world order. Uh, we can't just take as a given that this is a rules-based liberal world order created by the United States, by mm -hmm. the West, for the West. So that's been brewing for a while. And I think countries are watching what's happening um, with Ukraine, but they're empowered by the fact that most of the rest of the world, mm -hmm. in, particularly in the global south, mm -hmm. are, if not disinterested in the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. they're openly rooting for Russia and seeing a future with China and Russia rather than the West. Mm -hmm. um, and in my article, I, I'm quoting some really fascinating data from Cambridge University um, about the splits that's going on in, in the global south. Mm -hmm. um, with the exception of, of, of India, which is sort of, you know, obviously has a history of antagonism with China, um, virtually mm -hmm. the entire global south um, uh, views China as uh, more favorably than they view the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, they even view Russia, even post-Ukraine, as more favorable than the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and that's across the, almost the entire global south. And a lot of mm -hmm. parts of the global south have good, close relations with the West, with the United States, with Europeans. Um, and they are trade partners, you know, they do a whole bunch of business with them. Um, 
but politically is where the split is taking place. Mm -hmm. So economically, there's still a lot of interdependence. The West still dominates global globalization and, and global liberalism and global um, you know, trade and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but politically, uh, a lot of the world is seeing 75 years of American leadership of the, of the mm -hmm. liberal world order. Mm -hmm. um, what I argue in my article is after, world, after the Cold War ended, mm -hmm. um, instead of accepting a new world without the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. the United States essentially and the West doubled down on all of these principles of US-led global governance. Mm -hmm. Francis Fukuyama from Stanford called it the end of history. Mm -hmm. um, liberals, Democrats, and conservative Republicans alike, you had liberal internationalists on the Democratic side, you had sort of conservative um, internationalists, neocons uh, on the Republican side. Everyone mm -hmm. sort of came together, and neoliberalism economics was, mm -hmm. you know, and the Washington consensus mm -hmm. um, had supposedly won the world. Mm -hmm. That lasted all through the 1990s, um, and it forgot about world politics. Mm -hmm. It forgot that the world is still anarchic. Mm -hmm. It forgot that nation states can still be very nationalistic and concerned with their own nationalistic uh, well-being. Mm -hmm. It completely missed the idea that there might be other ideologies out there, other political mm -hmm. ideologies out there other than Western liberalism that, mm -hmm. by the way, predate Western liberalism in some cases by, by millennia in mm -hmm. the case of a China, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, the post-Cold War order Mm -hmm. is really what I was referring to, mm -hmm. um, has really been challenged. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, the, the main underpinnings of the Western w world order mm -hmm. have been for all of these uh, decades, and it got supercharged after the end of the Cold War, um, mm -hmm. the UN manages international law, mm -hmm. uh, the, the WTO manages global economics, mm -hmm. um, NATO manages global security, mm -hmm. Um, and the European Union, as I put it, has, has always sort of been this exemplar of post-sovereignty uh, liberalism. You know, this mm -hmm. idea that nation states don't exist anymore. We just create these big economic unions and we can sort of demilitarize. It's all, you know, butter over guns. And, you know, mm -hmm. that was convenient for the Europeans because they were relying on American economic supremacy for all of these decades. Mm -hmm. So they didn't even have to defend themselves. The United States had them under their military mm -hmm. and nuclear Umbrella. So the Europeans developed a whole political ideology that a lot of Western liberals still believe is the future of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've just been, it's been shock after shock after shock for the last 20, mm -hmm. 25 years. 9-11 was a shock. Mm -hmm. uh, the 2008 global financial collapse where, you know, you're going to just turn everything over to Western liberal, neoliberalism. Look what the Western banks mm -hmm. did. You know, look what, you know... Um, global, you know, banking, financial governance of the entire world economy, you know, look, mm -hmm. what they, look what that got the world. And as bad as it was for the Western countries, you know, to go through mm -hmm. those economic shocks that were led by Western banks, um, you know, the whole rest of the world went into a global Great Recession. You know, think about what's happening in, in you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, mm -hmm. you know, or Latin America, or the Middle East, mm -hmm. or Southeast Asia, you know, uh, when, the, when the West sneezes, you know, the whole world catches a cold. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think a lot of the world sees the mismanagement of the global economy mm -hmm. uh, and this idea that we're just moving into an increasingly perf perfected, mm -hmm. uh, you know, liberal um, future of end of history, as Fukuyama mm -hmm. put it. And most of the West, rest of the world just kind of rejects that. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've seen is over time, uh, first it was a challenge from non-state actors like mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. I mean, Al-Qaeda is directly at war against the United States, directly at war against the West. They attacked the United States in 1998. 
<clears throat> in East Africa. They attacked, obviously, the United States on 9-11. Those mm -hmm. are non-state actors. Mm -hmm. So the United States and the West, very powerful, but non-state actors using the tactic of terrorism started going after the, the world order itself. Mm -hmm. And that's still ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think after the 2000s and the war on terrorism, which the U.S. spent a ton of money, fought two wars, you know, a lot of calamities came out of uh, the militarized war on terrorism, the global financial crisis of 07, 08. Coming out of that, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the world, this includes big powers like China, like Russia, like India, but mm -hmm. um, a lot of the rest of the world, the global south, that are mm -hmm. basically potentially picking sides. Mm -hmm. Am I going to be, you know, Shanghai Cooperation Organization or am I going to be IMF? Mm -hmm. You know, the IMF comes in and gives you a conditionality agreement, and guess what? They're going to give you, you know, $750 million in loans, but now you're going to have to do a whole bunch of things the West tells you you have to do. Mm -hmm. Or China's going to come in and make you the same deal and say, you just develop however you want. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to build a coal-fired power plant? Go ahead. We'll bring the energy company in to run it for you. Mm -hmm. That's what China says. Mm -hmm. The IMF says you can't use coal. You have to use a much more expensive source of energy as you develop. And a lot of the rest of the world sees that stuff and says, I don't think I want to be part of that Western-led system anymore. Mm -hmm. um, Ukraine just kind of brought that out. It brought it out into the open. Um, uh, I think a lot of people in the West were shocked that the world mm -hmm. just didn't rally against Russia. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the New York Times, to their credit, I could send you guys, um, you, people could look it up. Uh, I forgot the exact title of it, but, um, oh, it might have been, the title was something like, The West Expected the World to Unite Around Its War Against Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And this was New York Times, I could be critical of the New York Times for a whole bunch of reasons, but this, this was New York Times world-class journalism at its mm -hmm. best. Mm -hmm. They had four reporters on it. It was about maybe 3,500, 5,000 words, charts and diagrams, all mm -hmm. about the different parts of the world that initially jumped on board mm -hmm against Russia. And what's fascinating is there were two votes in the UN General Assembly mm -hmm. about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Both overwhelmingly, you know, uh, rebuked Russia and demanded Russia immediately withdraw from Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think only like four or five countries actually voted in support of Russia, like mm -hmm. Syria, North Korea, you know, the usual suspects. Mm -hmm. um, there were about 35 or 40 countries mm -hmm. that abstained, including China mm -hmm. uh, and India. Uh, and, uh, and the Gulf states and Brazil. Oh no, Brazil voted, there were, then there was a third category of countries that voted with the UN General Assembly against Russia, but then went on in de facto terms um, to continue economic relationships with Russia and even increase economic relationships with mm -hmm. Russia. Then about a year later, I think almost exactly a year later, there was a second UN General Assembly vote, and the votes were almost exactly identical. Mm -hmm. the, it was like a 90%, you know, retribution, I mean, um, uh, rebuke to, uh, to Russia's invasion, demands mm -hmm. Russia immediately withdraws. But these are non-binding UN mm -hmm. resolutions. These are not like Security Council resolutions. Right. These were ge General Assembly non-binding resolutions. So everyone was sort of able to say, yeah, we oppose that kind of brutality and this and that. Mm -hmm. But in the real world of politics, the political and economic relations, even with Turkey, which is a NATO member, mm -hmm. um, have been much closer. And Brazil, which is mm -hmm. the biggest country in South America, the most important country, arguably, mm -hmm. uh, in South America, um, they've just gotten closer with Russia mm -hmm. uh, since the war started. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? Mm -hmm. How could a country, Russia, invade a sovereign state, mm -hmm. which, by the way, were, there were rules in world politics that predate the United States as a country 
rules against invading another country's sovereign territory. Mm -hmm. That just that goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia, mm -hmm. you know, in 1648. Um, so these norms of world politics were absolutely violated by Russia. And then they go in there with all kinds of horrific military operations, bombing, you know, schools, mm -hmm. you know, just massacring children. You know, the worst kinds of human rights violations and mm -hmm. atrocities you could think of uh, in, in world politics. And we still don't see the whole world uniting against Russia. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Mm -hmm. What's going on? And the only obvious answer is the West has lost some part of the credibility that it once had to govern the world. Mm -hmm. With U.S. as a leading power, with the Western-based institutions, like I mentioned, the U.N., NATO, uh, the WTO, mm -hmm. you know, with these institutions as the governing bodies of world politics, mm -hmm. um, with Washington and, let's say, you know, Brussels mm -hmm. uh, making most of the decisions in, in the world. Um, and a lot of the world is not at war with the West and not mm -hmm. joining military alliances, but this is more of a soft underbelly, mm -hmm. you know, rising opposition to the order that has existed since 1945. Mm -hmm. You know, and particularly they tr tried to get built up in the 1990s. And I think that was where the mistake came from. I know we're not talking about, you know, the roads not taken, but um, I think the West, it's it got too ideological. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I can say it this way, too ethnocentric, mm -hmm. uh, too much believing that the West and Western liberalism, Western capitalism had all of the answers for the world today, tomorrow and into the future. Mm -hmm. I think that was ideologically overextended. Mm -hmm. I think the institutions got overextended. I think the mm -hmm. WTO got overextended. I think NATO engaging in out of area humanitarian missions mm -hmm. like in, in um, uh, Libya, mm -hmm. that was overextension uh, of the of those organizations. Mm -hmm. um, I think the European Union is really in a reckoning moment right now. I mean, sh by the way, they won a Nobel, Europe won a Nobel Peace Prize, I think it was uh, 2014, um, for uh, its, po its view of post-sovereignty liberalism as being the future of world politics. Mm -hmm. That's all coming, that's all unraveling right now mm -hmm. in Europe as, as opposition parties rise up in Germany, in France, in Spain, in Italy, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in Finland. I mean, all these parts of, of Europe, including Northern Europe, mm -hmm. uh, Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, you see this pushback against kind of a utopian vision of Western liberalism mm -hmm. um, within the Western democracies themselves. Mm -hmm. So what we find, my last point on this is what we find now is a two-level attack mm -hmm. against a more utopian vision of the Fukuyama end of history thesis, you know, mm -hmm. that, it's, that Western liberalism just keeps progressing until mm -hmm. it reaches a perfect uh, ending. What... It's what Voltaire, one of the leading, the early, mm. you know, Enlightenment scholars called uh, the apotheosis of human history would be this ultimate liberalism. And I think just a lot of Western mm. liberal capitals believe that stuff. Mm. <clears throat> um, and uh, I think we're seeing a challenge from below, from the democratic underpinnings like Trump voters mm -hmm. or, you know, um, Marine Le Pen voters mm -hmm. or the alternative for Deutschland voters in Germany that are rising up mm -hmm. right now. So you see this kind of challenge to the Western political systems. And, and by the way, without Western political systems being strong, there is no Western liberal order, mm -hmm. period. You know, mm -hmm. there's only a Western, liber they're only governing global relations. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're powerful politically, domestically. Mm -hmm. You know, you tear down those institutions mm -hmm. domestically. I don't, I'm not saying they turn into fascism, but they turn into something not quite globalized, liberal, you know, right. oriented. Um, you don't have those same global liberal institutions anymore. Mm -hmm. So you have a challenge from underneath Mm -hmm. from populist, mostly right, but also mm -hmm. left, also mm -hmm. left, Bernie, Bernie Sanders left. Um, 
and you have the challenge from above, which are other great powers and the international system itself, including the global south, which are all sort of, you know, not joining forces in a, in like a hot, totally hostile way, but but questioning the ability of these Western liberal democracies to maintain that kind of titular position of leadership of global governance. Mm -hmm. And those are the two challenges we're gonna face for the next couple of generations. Mm. Now that we've discussed the challenges to the Western liberal order and the shifts in global politics, I'd like to explore the implications of these developments on the world stage. One significant event that caught everyone's attention, obviously, was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The geopolitical landscape is marked by a duality between Western unity and global divisions, as highlighted by Putin's perspective on NATO and the West. This raises a pivotal question. Can the West maintain its unity and credibility in the face of these shifting geopolitical tides? Or will it face further division and challenges in the future? Great questions. I think this, it's, it's multidimensional, <clears throat> and I think you phrased it really well. Um, and I see it the same way. Um, I don't think Putin was wrong. Mm -hmm. I think Putin, uh, now you have to remember these closed autocratic regimes, and this is also a warning to China and the Communist Party and the limited uh, information flows that they have in those closed you know, CCP kind of uh, models. Um, they didn't even think that NATO was going to stay united. Mm. So it is, it's a duality <clears throat> here, Charlie, in a lot of ways, which is the, the West and NATO got more united, mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the world split. Mm -hmm. from the West, ironically. So Putin was half right. Um, he viewed, he thought the West was not going to be united. And it still might not be, by the way. You get mm -hmm. enough of these elections in France, in Spain, in Sweden, mm -hmm. in, in Denmark, in Hungary, you know, with Orban, mm -hmm. uh, Turkey reluctantly, you know, let Sweden in. Um, there's still these fights within these, you know, what is it, 33 mm -hmm. NATO members now? I mean, mm -hmm. you get 33 relatives together and get them to agree on something, you know. So there's challenges within the NATO organization that Putin f viewed correctly. Mm -hmm. But in the short term, he was wrong. They mm -hmm. were united. They did fight back. They, it was a good moment for Western you know, defense organization. Mm -hmm. um, where he was right, uh, and he continues to be right, and he's going to be even more right in the future. And this is, this is the length of time. See, China doesn't operate on you know, summer holiday time frames. Mm -hmm. And neither does Russia, neither do these older, these sort of these older civilizations and cultures that predate the West, particularly the United States, very young country. Mm -hmm. um, just a slight aside, uh, there was a meeting when Nixon and Mao first met in China in 1972. And um, uh, Henry Kissinger, the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State, was meeting with Zhou Enlai, uh, the Chinese foreign minister for, for Mao. And they're waiting around for their two bosses to come by. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nixon... I'm sorry, Kissinger was meeting with Joe Enlay. Kissinger said to Joe Enlay, he said, dude, we're just like chatting, you know, like as intellectuals, both had PhDs and everything. He goes, so Joe, tell me, what do you think was the ultimate outcome of the French Revolution? And Joe Enlay said, it's too early to tell. Mm. That's the difference between an American Western mindset of it all mm -hmm. has to happen yesterday Mm -hmm. and tomorrow the latest, to different, and I would put Al-Qaeda in this category, you know, kind of the, the jihadi militancy that goes back to the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. um, and their, much of their rhetoric and ideologies based on, uh, you know, recreating Middle Age um, economic and religious models. Um, they have all the patience in the world. Mm -hmm. The West doesn't have that kind of patience. Mm -hmm. So in the short run, Putin was wrong because it did unite the West right now um, mm -hmm. to push back on what was a clear affront Mm -hmm. to the international order, to, you know, international norms that go back centuries, mm -hmm. to the people of Ukraine, to the 
strict sanctity of sovereign borders and the countries just can't go in there and re redraw them whenever that whenever they want. Mm -hmm. So the West took a strong stand on that because they really had to. Mm -hmm. But over time, let's see what happens. I would predict as of right now, Russia will end up holding Crimea and keeping much of the Donbass and, and Eastern Ukraine, mm -hmm. which is all that they wanted to begin with. Let's think about it. They wanted a land bridge to Ukraine mm -hmm. and a water bridge to the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna have a naval fleets that now could connect to their naval bases that are off Syria right now. Um, mm -hmm. And if they end up at the end of all of this mm -hmm. with, you know, 10, 15% of Ukraine, the Eastern portion and Crimea and naval ports that go through the Straits of Turkey and into the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. how is that not a victory for Putin? Mm -hmm. So he feels he could wait this out. Xi Jinping is looking at it over from, from, uh, from East Asia and saying, we, we're, not, we're a 7,000 year old civilization. What's our hurry? Mm -hmm. Let's see where this is in five years. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be sooner than that, you know, for the world to start coming around and making agreements, armistice agreements, whatever, between Ukraine and Russia. Um, U.S. and the West provides security guarantees for Ukraine moving forward. It doesn't have to be part of NATO, but security guarantees for Ukraine. Um, Russia could live with that. China could live with that. And then what? China says, what will be our punishment for taking Taiwan, which is, histor no one could argue, historically part of China, unlike you could make the case this way or that way about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, no one's going to argue that Taiwan is not a historic part of, of, uh, of China. Mm -hmm. um, you know, might as well have, uh, you could argue in constructivist theory, it has evolved over time to have its own identity, its own sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. I'd mm -hmm. probably partially make that case. Um, but uh, what's China's hurry? I mean, if the world is not going to react to cluster mm -hmm. bombs in schoolhouses mm -hmm. in Ukraine with all the world watching, mm -hmm. They do a lightning strike on, on Taiwan, take it over, and now what? Now what? The world wants to go into a global Great Depression by cutting off all aid with China. How is that going to happen? The mm -hmm. United States and the West are still trading oil with Russia. Mm -hmm. We're still using oil from Russia and natural mm -hmm. gas in sort of roundabout um, ways on the global marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, there's still Western companies doing business with Russian companies. Mm -hmm. you know, And we're so much more intertwined with China. Mm -hmm. economically, obviously, in the world economy, so much more intertwined with China. The idea that if China invaded Taiwan, mm -hmm. um, the whole world economy grinds to a halt, and it's 1929 all over again. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, China wants to make that bet. I think they're going to win that bet. I don't think it's mm -hmm. going to be pretty for a while, but mm -hmm. um, I think they're not thinking about a while. They're thinking about in the long run, in 10 years, will Taiwan then be Hong Kong? Mm -hmm. You know, look how fast everyone forgot about Hong Kong. Right. You know, I mean... The world has a very short memory, mm -hmm. um, and the West doesn't recognize that as much as other parts of the world do. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, um, th like for example, just a, a slight aside: U U.S. overthrows the uh, uh, Mossadegh in in, uh, in Iran in 1953 in mm -hmm. a CIA coup with uh, the British. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think anyone, if we walked up and down this block, if there's one person on in this street or in this city? that knows mm -hmm. that the United States CIA had a coup in Iran in 1953 that overthrew an elected government in Iran in 1953? Mm -hmm. Think anyone knows that? No one here knows that. Very few people, I think, in Western Europe would even know that. You know mm -hmm. who knows that? Every Iranian. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the Middle East and Persian Gulf. Even the, the Sunnis who don't particularly care for the Shiites mm -hmm. and the Persians um, know what the United States and the British did in 1953. Mm -hmm. You know? So there's a lot of long, there's long, you know, there's a short memory when you want, when you want there to be, mm -hmm. and there's a long memory when 
it's part of what your culture has become, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's part of the, the disconnect between the way the West and the Eastern, you know, and, and the, the Western order and China rising, you know, more, more in East Asia. Um, uh, there's just so many sort of disconnects there. My old, mm -hmm. <clears throat> one of the great professors at Columbia, Bob Jervis, just spent a career writing about misperceptions and things. And a lot of it does come from identity and culture and history mm -hmm. and how you view each other. Um, and uh, I, so in the, in the, you know, the sort of the short answer to uh, the long answer to your short question was um, Putin was right on certain things, mm -hmm. uh, but in the sweep of history mm -hmm. and the way the trends are going right now, <clears throat> these tectonic shifts that I think that we do, we are seeing, mm -hmm. um, uh, it's against. It's going against the West. It's going against the Western tide. I believe the West can adjust. It can make accommodations. It could mm -hmm. be more generous with its view of the rest of the world, particularly mm -hmm. in the global South. Um, uh, so I don't think it's a game over. I don't think the I West see. has lost. And mm -hmm. I think the Eastern countries, particularly China um, and Russia, uh, mm -hmm. have to recognize that liberal democracies are pa very powerful political mm -hmm. systems. They have a lot of legitimacy. They do have elections. They have very strong economies. The G7 mm -hmm. is still the dominant economic club uh, in the world by far. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that Western liberal democracies are not going away. Mm -hmm. So you can get this sort of alliance of autocracies that sometimes Putin and Xi like to talk, you know, mm -hmm. refer to it as. And sometimes, you know, Kim Jong-il will jump in uh, to that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and sometimes, you know, like an Hugo Chavez or someone will jump in on that conversation. Um, uh, but the Western democracies aren't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. They have proven to be the best economic and political systems mm -hmm. to sustain, you know, the fairest and most um, uh, affluent, uh, mm -hmm. you know, systems of government. Um, so both sides are going to have to recognize there's going to have to be a coexistence mm -hmm. uh, between each other. Building on our exploration of the global implications of the Ukraine conflict, let us now turn our focus inward to examine the domestic political dynamics within the United States. As tensions between the US and China continue escalating, the China issue will likely play an increasingly central role in America's internal politics. This gives rise to critical questions about how different administrations and parties may approach relations with China and what economic strategies they may favor or oppose. To gain deeper insights into these complex matters, We'll further discuss the potential policy stance and economic plans that could emerge under various political leaderships in America. The interplay between foreign and domestic policy spheres underscores the multifaceted nature of the U.S.-China relationship. Thank you for listening to this episode of the U.S.-China Salon podcast. Please join us next time. I am your host, Charlie Du. Thank you.